Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, January 22nd, and we're recapping some of the big IPOs of 2020. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's royal reviewer of robotic, non-regular, rational reassessment, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, how's it going, my friend? <laughs> I can't complain. You know, it's it's a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. I'm excited to get out and walk around a little bit, take some of that sun in. You know, I feel like I've been a little little hermited recently, and I, I'm looking forward to, to getting out and enjoying the day a little bit. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I try and take a walk or a bike ride or something every single day, even on terrible days, because uh, like you, I work from home, which means <laughs> I don't get out enough. So I try and force myself to do that. You need to create the commute. You really do. I think it. <laughs> I, I, I think we all need time to decompress. And I, I found that I am a much happier person when I step outside for 15 minutes after the workday and almost act as if I'm walking home. It, it puts me in a much better mindset, helps me separate the work life and the life life. It's a great excuse to listen to podcasts, too. Like you said, it's a fake commute for ourselves. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, listeners. You know, if you're, if you're having trouble finding time for us, just go for a walk, you know? Uh, that, that's what I listen to most of the shows that I'm trying to catch up on. Um, Brian, we, we are going to be recapping some of our own shows, kind of in a sense, with this episode. We did so many S1 shows looking at IPOs in 2020. It was really kind of an embarrassment of riches for us last year. There were so many companies that came public, so many really big names that people already knew and had kind of eagerly been waiting for. Um, we, we sometimes have a habit, though, of doing that first show when there's all the excitement about the company and then forgetting to check back in. And so today, <laughs> so today we're going to be doing that. And we actually had to edit our list. We had so many to actually choose from. We said we can't make this too long. So I have a feeling we're going to have to do another one of these in like a month or two. Oh, shoot. <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's so nice when we have easy ideas and things that we know people are interested in. There's been so much enthusiasm in particular, I think, about the, the IPO markets um, in the past couple of years, just because there have been so many really good performers um, that have come out and put up some stellar returns for investors in the first year or two on the public exchanges. We're going to be running through four names in particular, but of course, if we wind up leaving anything hanging and folks want to hear about a specific company that we've talked about in the past, industry folks focus at fool.com, right, Brian? You can get us That's there. Right. We will, That's right. And, and we will get to it because uh, we had some great companies that we had to leave off the list. All right. So, so the first one on the list for us is Asana. And we talked about this one a little while ago. Uh, shocker, guys. It's a SaaS company. And, and Brian did a lot of the heavy lifting for the homework on this one. Asana is a company that is focused on uh, work management. So they provide a software platform uh, that provides real-time planning and road mapping for everybody in an organization. And it helps to keep everybody on the same page, reducing the need for meetings, for uh, for unproductive uh, time looking for updates. Uh, and it's used for Everything across the organization from, say, product launches, uh, marketing campaigns to uh, organization-wide uh, goal settings. And it allows people to share unstructured work uh, and data with each other very easily in, in, in one spot. 
They have deployed a freemium model, like we've seen with many other successful uh, SaaS companies. So you can go on to their uh, platform and get up and running easily. And if you decide that uh, the product is work for you, you can pay for premium uh, products. And we're seeing a lot of companies do just that. Yeah. And, and Brian, I think it's worth emphasizing that this is a space where a lot of companies have seen a lot of success. You know, working in the enterprise space of software in particular has been just a wonderful market for so many businesses. But I think we're seeing the productivity side of software really start to blossom over the last couple of years. And and part of it is when all these other things go cloud, it only makes sense for the communication tools that you use, the coordination tools that you use to also go cloud because we're increasingly working in more decentralized uh, work environments. That's exactly right. And it's no, it's unproductive to spend time emailing each other, to have Zoom session with each other, just looking for updates. It's so much easier to just have one centralized repository where everybody keeps track on what they're working on. So managers can easily get updates on projects uh, as they go along. And uh, to your point, we've seen so many large companies in particular really adopt this software in earnest. Uh, so in the company's most recent uh, quarterly report, which was their first since coming public, uh, they reported a 55% growth uh, in revenue to $59 million. And they noted that they had 89,000 uh, in total paying customers. What's interesting about that is customers on their platform that are spending more than $5,000 per year, that grew 80% this quarter, and customers who spend more than $50,000 per year, that grew 104%. So we're clearly seeing a willingness of larger and larger companies willing to pay to use this software. Yeah. And one thing that we harped on plenty when we talked about this company was uh, the, the pedigree of its leader. Uh, Dustin Moskovitz. And, um, you know, it, it's worth reminding folks just for, for people that may not know, but Dustin Moskovitz, formerly of Facebook, you know, one, one of the uh, big names, certainly in the industry. And this is his second act in a way. Um, and, and it's so different in some ways than what people know him for. But it also really feels like it's at the intersection of, of where tech SaaS and, and really company solutions are going. And he got the idea for this company during his time at Facebook. He noticed that he was spending an inordinate amount of his personal time just looking for updates on projects. And he kind of felt that he had to uh, find a better way. And you're absolutely correct. He is the pedigree of pedigree when it comes to CEOs. I'm looking at his Glassdoor ratings right now. He has a 100% approval rating. And there's more than 100, and, uh, 100 reviews in there. So you can trust that number. And the company itself gets 4.9 stars out of 5 in their corp corporate presentations, they regularly tout the, the, these metrics and that they're a fabulous place to work. Yeah. And so far, it's been a fabulous stock to own, Brian. Uh, the performance since going public has been mighty strong, even for folks who didn't buy at issuance price. I mean, let's be honest, uh, none of us are buying at issuance price. Uh, we're catching it uh, on the first or second trade at, at best. you know. Uh, and, and so the, the numbers have been good. Where I think it's something around a 50% return um, yeah, from, from where they first went public. The last I checked, it was uh, uh, they were up thirty-eight uh, percent or so, and I think a big reason why is people are still very interested in SaaS. The management team here is is stellar, and their first quarter uh, earnings report was uh, was good. One thing that we did call out on the show and we did it is this company, as a SaaS company, has some jaw-dropping uh, margins. So its gross margin here is 88% already. Uh, that is huge. The number that we like to check with any SaaS company report is dollar bait net retention. Uh, those numbers looked pretty good overall. 
Uh, the overall company was over 115%, meaning that the average customer spent 15% more with uh, Asana this score, this period uh, when compared to the last. And if you look at the bigger clients, again, they are swimming upstream within their own customer base. They spent more than, a, their, their DBNR was 125%. Love to see that. The rest of the margins, not so good, Dylan. This is something we called out in our show. Uh, this company is not focused on its bottom light at all right now, and that just comes through. On a gap basis, their quarterly net loss was $73 million. A lot of that is stock-based compensation, so their adjusted net loss was $38 million, uh, or $0.34 cents per share. That did beat Wall Street's estimate. On a free cash flow basis, not as bad. They burnt about $20 million in uh, free cash flow, and they did uh, give some pretty healthy guidance for the, for the upcoming quarter. They're expecting 44% revenue growth uh, for the upcoming quarter and 55% for the first year. So I like it when companies do outperform expectations on their first earnings report, and Asana definitely did. Yeah, and and I think we can't be too surprised by what we're seeing in terms of the financials. The further you get away from the revenue line, right? I mean, they only have about two hundred million in in trailing twelve month revenue. Uh, they're about a six billion dollar business. So I think any executive team would look at where they are and say, "We got to go out and grab as much market as we can." You know, we we've got a software solution that even at this scale is high 80% gross margins. We know that we're going to be able to print money whenever we decide to. We just got to hit the scale where we have the customers that we want to have, expand our relationship with them over time. And that's a formula that we've seen work many, many times again, but uh, they still have a ways to go before they reached <laughs> enough scale to start producing profits. But so far, a good start. Yeah. And, and I think um, for them, they are in that space where it isn't hard to see a multi-bagger. You know, it, we talk about it a lot, Brian, but the idea of, of valuation really comes into play when you are trying to project out what a business can become and what type of returns you need to kind of wrap your head around being realistic for a company. And so, you know, being about a $6 billion business, it isn't inconceivable for them if they really nail their execution and they, they wind up growing the way they expect to and become what so many other companies have become in the enterprise software space. You know, something that is measured in the tens of billions of dollars at some point. That's not hard math to do. As we're going to talk about with <laughs> some of the other names on this list, the math gets a lot tougher. And, and so I think this is a business where, you know, people have gotten very used to multi-bagger type returns in the software as a service space. This is one where it's not too hard to see that. Totally agree. I always like to look at market cap. And to your point, we've seen lots of companies reach the 20, 30, $40 billion or even above that range in the SaaS space. So uh, if they can keep this growth rate up and gradually improve their bottom line margins, this could definitely be a multi-bagger from here. You know, Brian, Asana's returns are nice and all, but uh, the second stock kind of blows them out of the water. Uh, and that's, that's Palantir, uh, up by my count 180% uh, since even the regular investors like us were able to get their hands on the stock, even more so if you happen to be one of those people who scooped up shares at issuance price. Uh, I think it's basically like a 4x on where they issued, uh, which is wild because it's been less than a year. But I think it really speaks to how much hype was behind this business and the expectations going into it. Um, Palantir is one of those companies that I think even people who don't really follow the private markets probably knew, Brian. It's, it's, it's one of those lore type companies that people had just been hearing about for such a long time. 
Yeah, and a controversial company at that. We we talked about that uh, in the S one show, but uh, founded by uh, Peter Peter Thiel, who uh, famously f- uh, founded uh, PayPal, and they definitely have uh, built a interesting business for themselves. But to your point, love seeing that the stock popped and that public investors were actually able to get a piece of that. Yeah, that's always nice. You know, um, I, I think it's it's hard sometimes to look at the IPO returns and be like, well, wait a minute, you guys are calculating that based on issuance price, which no one no one was <laughs> able to realize. Come on, guys, let's be real here. Um, but uh, for folks unfamiliar with Palantir, um, this is really a software business. It's focused on big data and big data analytics, uh, and and really what they are trying to do, not so much in the collection of data but more in the making sense of data, helping people uh, make decisions based on data sets, uh, create intelligence from data sets, and really make sense of what is largely unstructured data. And so that's what they do. The reason they're controversial is because of who they do that for. And um, they are kind of the easiest way to think about them is if you took a tech company and made them a defense contractor. Um, I, I, th- I think that that's, that's about as simple as it gets for who they are and what they do. Um, they started out working in the, d- the intelligence community, and that's, that's really where they got their start. Um, that's where most of their money is coming from, um, those types of contracts, though they are working to branch more and more into kind of traditional enterprise customer um, relationships, still something that is relatively small in the overall scheme of their top line. Um, but but they say it well, and I think this is one of the easiest ways to uh, really summarize the bulk of their business. Um, our software has become the de facto operating system of the US and allied defenses. They, they, they call that out in the investor relation presentation, Brian. And I think this is one of those businesses where it's very helpful to look at the investor presentation, because honestly, a lot of their relationships are, they're, they're cagey in describing them. Yeah, and that is actually a pretty good sales pitch. This is a company that spent years developing its technology, and obviously they had to place a tremendous emphasis on security to land some of the big customers that they that they uh, that they have over time. Getting them on board takes a huge amount of effort, a huge amount of work up front. But once they're in there, and once you are cleared to work with, say, the U.S. government, uh, boy, is that going to be hard to to dislodge you. And as they move more into the private sector, it's nice to say, hey, governments trust us with their data. You should too. Yeah, that's a really good case in point for them to be able to point to, um, and and I think it's it's worth unpacking what that means for them in terms of their relationships and also what their growth story looks like. Because when you have those types of um, in, incredibly precious private secure type contracts, um, those take a very long time to develop, and they take a very long time to both uh, sell but also to implement and. That means that from a customer acquisition standpoint, um, you are working in pretty long cycles. One thing that management has addressed in some of their uh, public comments since going public is that they are shortening those cycles a little bit. I think some of that is, you know, having worked with some really gold standard type companies and 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 organizations, uh, but that's going to be an ongoing challenge for them. I think as they work more and more in the commercial space, we'll probably see those periods shorten a little bit. But it's something that affects this business. And and the flip side of that, Brian, is they wind up with somewhat extended predictable revenue cycles coming in because they're locking in multi-year contracts with a lot of their relationships. And I think one reason that this company went public was to get its name out there. And we've seen a lot of companies use coming public as a marketing event. 
to get their name out there. Uh, and this stock has been on fire. So I know that the investment community has been talking about this company a lot. I'm sure that and alone is helping it to reduce its sales cycle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I can't think of a better way to advertise something like this than to show your customer slide and just say this this is who we're <laughs> providing this for. Um, you know, I think you can trust us, uh, particularly when you're you're operating in more sensitive stuff. Um and, and to give people a sense of what some of the enterprise, what some of the, the commercial side of their business looks like, um, they they call this out in their most recent earnings deck, but they had a top five pharmaceutical company using them to link data from more than 2,000 clinical trials in Foundry, which is one of their products, to uncover trends across trials and securely analyze outcomes at a population level. Uh, they also specifically called out that an aerospace customer signed the largest commercial deal they have ever done uh, in their most recent quarter, uh, this one being three months past. Uh, and this was in the midst of a pandemic uh, that, of course, shook the entire aerospace industry. Uh, and this was, I believe, a $300 million five-year contract. Um, that was one of the big headlines coming out of their most recent earnings report. And I think part of the reason why we saw the stock spike as much as we did um, so much of the thesis, I think, is can we expand beyond what we've done so far? And I think this becomes... Uh, a business with a much larger total addressable market if they can prove out to the commercial space that they are worthy of their spend. It's interesting though, Brian, because I remember we were talking about this and then we were followed uh, on Motley Fool Live by our colleague Tim Byers, who said, you know, one of the dangers with that is if you are a secure software, <laughs> the more ubiquitous you become by nature, the more exposed you are. The more hackers want to get to, to you in particular. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, an excellent point. And I think that one thing that we talked about on the, uh, the S1 show is that this company's growth rate might be a little bit lumpier than we would see with most SaaS companies just by the nature of their business. When they're business model is essentially going out and landing these enormous clients. And to your point, that aerospace customer, a $300 million deal in one client, I mean, that's definitely going to have an impact on, on, on your top line. So uh, their growth rate might vary from quarter to quarter. So this is a company you really need to zoom out probably and look at a six or even year period to judge their results. Yeah, and, and that's part of the reason why when it comes to the IPOs, we we often like to wait a couple quarters is because you want to see where these year-over-year -year growth rates really kind of smooth out to. And in Palantir's case, uh, the most recent quarter for them, 52% year-over-year growth, which is actually an acceleration from where they were in previous quarters at 49 and 43%. But they are guiding for something in the 30% range uh, for this upcoming quarter. Part of that is they had a particularly strong Q4 in 2019. But I mean, we know that growth gets harder as that denominator gets bigger, Brian. And and I think it's going to be lumpy regardless. It's it's not going to be nearly as smooth as a lot of the SaaS companies that we look at. Um, but they're also a business that's at a point where we would typically see things be lumpy. And so it makes it a little bit harder than I think usual to make sense of, of kind of what to expect broadly for this business long term. They're saying $1 billion in full year revenue um, for the year, which helps us wrap our head around that. But yeah, I mean, they, they could go out there and sign a couple really big deals. And you know, you're, you're right back up into the, the 40s you know, without having to think too hard about it. That's right. And to your point about 1 billion year in revenue, the company has performed so well and it's performing well again today uh, as we speak. It's up over 15% uh, just today. This is a 56 billion dollar business, Dylan. 56 billion dollars. Again, estimated to do about 1 billion in sales. So, holy cow, has this company's price to sales ratio been expanded over the last couple of months? 
it really has. And, and I think some of that is the news that's come out, you know, uh, being able to ink some really big contracts, you know, and, and I think they call attention to the fact that, you know, the pandemic was happening and that hurt the aerospace industry. And yet, even still, this customer was, was willing to sign this multi-year deal. That's a position of strength for them. But as a business with 65% gross margins, they, they deserve a pretty healthy price to sales ratio, Brian. But we've seen it expand dramatically on what I think is good news, not outrageously good news. Yeah, I would agree with you there. The company for me right now would be a little bit too hot to touch, but hats off to them for having a great public debut. Yeah. And and I think it's it's an interesting business, one to watch because it's tech in a space that we typically don't see tech, which is which is just kind of fun to explore. But in some ways, it reminds me of a company that I really love, and that's why I'm interested in it, um, and that's Axon. And you know, the nature of the business is kind of similar, where you're working in multi-year deals, you are providing in a space where it doesn't seem like there's another really popular provider, um, and there are a lot of advantages to that. But they are also proving out a market in a way that um, other businesses just don't have to do. And so there, there are challenges there, but there's a really interesting opportunity as well. Axon, if I recall, was your top stock for 2021 in the tech space. And Dylan here, uh, I'm looking at the market cap there, $10 billion. So about one-sixth <laughs> the size of, uh, of Palantir there. Yeah, although I don't think they have Palantir's margins <laughs> for, what, for, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to be bringing it back to a space that people are probably a little bit more familiar with this third stock, and that is Shift for Payments, Brian. Yeah, this is a uh, fintech company that I think we somehow swiped away from the Monday show. And I'm <laughs> glad we did because it's been a big winner uh, for investors. So this stock has uh, more than doubled since its uh, IPO. It's up about 114%. Uh, as a quick reminder, they are a fintech that provides a range of payment and merchant solutions. Uh, so they're kind of like Square in a way. However, they have a very strong focus, at least initially, on the hospitality space. So restaurants, uh, lodging, uh, leisure space. They provide them with uh, point of sale uh, software. And then that software can not only process payments, it can also provide them with all kinds of back office, things related to reporting, analytics. It can even help with uh, things like uh, social media management and marketing, as well as providing customers at restaurants with the ability to actually uh, pay at the table. At the time of their APO, they had more than 200,000 uh, customers, including some very well-known companies like uh, Caesars and uh, uh, Pebble Beach. The downside to that is with their focus on hotels and restaurants, not exactly those customers aren't exactly thriving uh, in a COVID world. Uh, but despite that, uh, Shift4 actually put up pretty decent results in its uh, earnings reports uh, as a public company. So payment volume through its network actually grew 20% in its most recent earnings report. That compares to an industry backdrop of a decline of 4%. So Shift4 is taking market share. Yeah. And you love to see businesses that are continuing to succeed even when there's a lot in their way. You know, if, if there are a ton of hurdles in front of a business and they are still able to put up above industry growth, Brian, that's generally a pretty good sign. Yep. And as a reminder, this has been a 
pretty acquisitive company. Historically, they have used their, their size and their scale to acquire companies to get their customers as well as build on their features. And we actually saw kind of more of the same uh, since they came public. They actually acquired a company called 3D Cart, which the best description I can give is it looks like a Shopify-like competitor. It helps customers provide e-commerce tools to, uh, to, to merchants, and they have about 14,000 uh, customers. So this company continues to grow both organically and through acquisition. Yeah. In some ways, Brian, this reminds me a little bit of a, a company called Blackline. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but um, you know the the payment space and, and the e-commerce space. There, there are a lot of players there, right? When, you know, we we talk about it all the time. There there are so many different names in that space, and a lot of really great winners that have come out of that space. But that also makes it hard to look at a business that is pretty small in the grand scheme of the industry um, and see a path forward that looks successful. And yet, I think with them being so focused on one particular industry and serving it really well, being able to cater to some of their needs in a way that a lot of the other providers might not be able to, that winds up being a pretty good offering. And the, the reason I, I invoke Blackline here is it's accounting software, which sounds really boring, but it, it's it's been a great stock to own. And it's because you know they are a great provider that that makes all the reconciliation way easier down the line. And um, you know, shareholders have been handsomely rewarded for that. Yeah, I've been a shareholder of Blackline for many, many years. It's totally one of those hidden behind the scenes players. And it's hard to get excited about accounting uh, <laughs> software, but Blackline sure has been a fabulous uh, long-term holding. So yeah, I agree with you. So having a hyper-focus, kind of like Shift4 does on on the uh, on, on an industry, really lets you build out your products and services to that industry in a way that sometimes the big providers uh, such as Square uh, just can't. So Clear signs that they are continuing to grow in their core market, uh, which is great. Now, one thing I will note is even though their payment volume, Shift Force payment volume, did grow up 20% in the time when the industry was going down uh, 4%, uh, their, the rest of their in uh, income statement didn't look as great. So gross revenue only grew 11% uh, and gross profit uh, grew 11%, so not quite as fast as total payment volume. And this company has been flirting with profitability and not uh, for, for a couple of quarters. In the most recent quarter, uh, they were not profitable. Their adjusted less not adjusted net loss was about uh, $2 million. Uh, that's not that big. That's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. At the quarter end, this company had over $300 million in cash, and they just raised even more uh, post, uh, post quarter end to really bolster out that, uh, that balance sheet. But uh, So the company is growing in a declining market, and as its core customers recover, fingers crossed there, uh, you could see this company's growth reaccelerating. Yeah, yeah. And, and I could also see this being, um, you know, in, in some ways, a, a differentiator. I mean, we have seen with the pandemic that businesses that were nimble and were relatively set up for where the industry is going. Uh, and that's really online ordering, um, being able to do pickup, being able to do delivery fairly easily, having really robust e-commerce storefronts, all that kind of stuff. That, that helps you out a lot. And I think that that might be a lesson for a lot of people that are in the hospitality space, you know, is is to to get online if you're not online and, and to really work to have uh, more integrated solutions that give you a much better lens into your business. The tech investments have paid off for so many players in businesses and industries that have that have otherwise kind of struggled. I wouldn't be surprised as budgets start to come back for some businesses if we see some heavy investment in this space. 
That would absolutely be wonderful. And Shift 4 is definitely in a position to take advantage of that. Uh, in fact, in actually their recent quarterly report, uh, they did raise their guidance pretty substantially uh, for, for the upcoming uh, quarter. So they were previously expecting, uh, for example, about $6.7 billion uh, in end-to-end payment volume, and they boosted that by uh, over 10%. That obviously does great things for the rest of the, the income statement. And for what it's worth, Wall Street's expecting some pretty torrid growth from this company in 2021. Uh, the current estimate on the street is for 40% revenue growth and for a pretty significant return to uh, to profitability. So uh, there's a lot of exciting things happening at Ship4 right now. Yeah. And another one that's that's kind of perfectly in that mid cap space, Brian. Five billion dollar business, you know, uh, not so not so much uh, for our final company on this list, uh, and that's Snowflake, which I think probably needs small inter- introduction, not a huge introduction. I imagine a lot of people have heard about it at this point, um, and that's because I mean, Brian, it was it was probably the most hyped IPO of 2020. You know, we we talked about all the fanfare behind Palantir, but uh, Snowflake was perhaps an even bigger IPO. The numbers that we saw pre-IPO for Snowflake were just jaw-dropping on in, in so many ways. And uh, if memory serves, I think this is a company that was coming public at something like $100, $110 per share. And Warren Buffett got in, which is interesting in its, in its own right. But uh, public investors never even got to sniff anywhere close to, to that price. This is one of those stocks that just popped over 100% on day one and just stayed in nosebleed territory till today. Yeah, it was kind of a perfect storm of, you know, things that can send a share price high. I mean, this was already a, a business that folks in the tech industry were salivating over. It was like one of the fastest growing SaaS companies ever at public offering. And when you have someone like Warren Buffett, who typically has said, you know what, tech is not my wheelhouse. I don't understand these businesses as well. I'm going to stay away, wind up taking a stake at IPO. Even people that aren't necessarily tech followers are going to latch onto that and think that there's something special here. My hunch is that it's one of Buffett's lieutenants that made that pick, Brian, uh, but but that's just conjecture on my part. I would say that their odds are pretty darn good uh, that that was going to happen. And I forget what valuation this company came public at, probably somewhere around $30 billion, uh, maybe even $40 billion, something like that. And even then, at the time of IPO, their trailing revenue was not even $500 million. So... Buffett or Buffett's lieutenants, as you point out, roughly still to buy at the IPO. They they were this company was trading at like sixty or seventy times sales at the IPO, and then it doubled. That just shows you how nutty the valuation got. Yeah, and a big part of that is this is viewed as one of those best in class businesses, and we talk about it a lot. But you wind up paying a premium for for companies that are truly head and shoulders above other companies in the space. Um, unfortunately, what it means is that the the returns haven't been particularly good. Uh, you know, and granted, it's only been public for a little while, um, but compared to some of the other companies out there, uh, just over double digit, I think, returns since going public uh, in the fall. Um, for folks unfamiliar with this business, since we built it up so much, Brian. Uh, this, is, this is a business that is, uh, in some ways, similar to Palantir. I mean, it's, it's all about data access, though it, it operates in a very different space when it comes to data. Um, they are really providing a platform that helps companies access their data security anywhere. Um, and this is something that allows them to upload structured data and unstructured data, and then make it universally accessible in the cloud. I think one of the most important things with this business is Kind of like Roku, it is cloud agnostic. You know, it, it, one of the easiest ways to think about this company is it works with everybody. It doesn't have a favorite in the cloud space. So if you're using Google, if you're using AWS, if you're using Microsoft, it plays nice with all three of them. 
you can see how that would be a big advantage if you were the chief investment officer at some large company. You don't necessarily want to be locked in and built your entire business around one platform like AWS or, or Azure or Google Cloud. Snowflake makes it easy, as you point out, to transfer it across uh, many of those platforms so that you do have some uh, ability and optionality in your future. I totally understand how that is an appealing prospect. Yeah, I mean, just from a negotiation standpoint, right? You know, to, to, be, to be able to take what you have and walk is huge. Uh, if if you're a customer, um, and I think the concern that you would have otherwise is like, well, we're stuck. You know, we're <laughs> we've we've already kind of uh, built ourselves into this very sticky ecosystem, and, and where else are we going to go? Um, so I think the value prop is is pretty obvious, uh, both from uh, a functionality standpoint, but then also when you're thinking about just what it allows customers to do uh, in terms of negotiation, in terms of pricing power, all that kind of stuff. And we have seen some of these even major platforms have occasional outages too. So there's also a redundancy factor with if by, by, by some chance Amazon Web Services isn't working like it wasn't a few, a few weeks ago, it's nice to be able to know that there's even backups at a massive scale if you do need your data accessible 100% of the time. Yeah, and, and they do some interesting things with um, how they allow data to be accessed. Um, I mean, at core, what this is trying to do is avoid the issue of data silos, um, make data governance a little bit easier. But also, if you are someone who um, needs data access to be somewhat compartmentalized or to have data shared outside of an organization, you should be able to do that relatively easily with Snowflake on a conditional uh, basis. And, and that's I think Brian, just kind of where we're going. You know, if, if you're thinking about like the interoperability of businesses, um, that that makes sense to me. And and I think it, this is a space, admittedly, where I am starting to feel my feet off of the pool floor. You know, <laughs> as as I start wading into the deep end, and the the further and further I get into this, and that's why I love hearing Tim Byers talk about this company. Um, but when I hear so many people in this industry talk about how they are truly the best at what they do, that gives me confidence uh, when I hear all these other buzzwords that I, that I normally kind of glaze over. And to me, when it comes to things like this, I'm always like, this sounds great. Prove it. Prove it to me with the numbers. Show me that the revenue growth comes through and that your service really is being hyper-adopted. And well, we have a couple earnings reports to look at, or at least one, and the numbers say, yes, they are proving it. Yeah, the staggering figure, I think, in what we saw in the S1 was their net revenue retention number. And out of the gate, that was an impressive number, Brian, 158% for the first six months of 2020. And then they went out and reported Q3 earnings, and it was up to 162%, which is just incredible. I mean, and, and that's that's the good one. You know, we, we talk about it all the time, but that's, that's the good one when we're talking about uh, rates. That's the one that includes churn and downgrades and selling. So yeah, that 162%, I believe, is best of breed across all SaaS. Like, I don't even think Zoom can touch that number. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> that's the kind of metric you can hang your hat on, even if you don't understand the tech behind a business, which is great because we need those things, right? We need those indicators as people who maybe don't have um, as deep of a technical knowledge. Um, something else that I think should probably give people a lot of confidence with this business is um, their RPO number is holding very steady as well. And so RPO is the amount of their contracted future revenue that has not yet been recognized but you can basically look at it and say, this is revenue that will be recognized in the future. It, it creates a, a look into what future quarters we're going to create for them financially. Um, and they posted RPO acceleration from their previous quarter at 240% year-over-year -year growth. Those are big numbers. And we talked about how the, the revenue base is so small for this company right now. 
those numbers are why the valuation is so large for that business. How, how do you value a company that is growing this fast, both uh, organically and through its own uh, customers? I mean, that RPO number is just insane, 240%. Another number here is that the number of customers that will spend more than $1 million on their product uh, is now 65. That's more than double uh, the year ago period. So when it comes to revenue growth and, and customers, I mean, the company is knocking the cover off the ball. Yeah. And all told, they're guiding for a year-over-year revenue growth of 114%. Uh, you know, the year-over-year growth rates will probably slide a bit as you get that denominator bigger and bigger. But I mean, my gosh, Brian, you know, uh, more, 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 more than a double, right? You know, it, it creates a lot of, of problems when it comes to putting a reasonable valuation on a business. Um, and and that's where, you know, we we talk about the idea of value investing sometimes. And it's weird to invoke value investing when we're talking about high growth stocks, um, because typically people think like cigar butt investing, you know, where you're, you're looking at multiples and you're seeing opportunities um, below market value. But I think we can also apply the lens of value investing to people or the market not fully appreciating the growth potential for a business. And this might be one of those companies. I think that kind of has to be the bull thesis if you're a shareholder. Yeah, you are banking on more quarters like this happening for a couple of years, essentially, to justify the valuation. But yeah, to your point, my favorite type of investing is finding companies that are priced very, very highly and the company executes so well over the next 10 years that it could have even justified even in higher price. So even though the business looks insanely expensive on any traditional valuation metric, it's still being undervalued. That's rare. That's really hard to find. But if you can find them, those can be some of the best businesses that you can buy. Yeah. And, and as we teed up, I mean, people tend to pay attention when you, when you start seeing numbers uh, like we just laid out here before. Uh, the, the stock debuted in the mid to low 200s. Uh, issuance price was, I think, 120 or so. So, so that was a double. But I mean, it, it is, it's gone through a crazy run. I think it was somewhere up in the mid 300s at one point over the last six months. <laughs> um, we, are, we are back, quote unquote, to something that is a little bit more down to earth. But even so, we're talking about an $80 billion business on under $500 million in trailing 12-month revenue. That is a very healthy sales multiple. You have to be pretty confident buying the stock that the growth is going to continue and that you know if it's going to be in the double digits rather than the triple digits, it's going to be in the very high double digits. Yeah, you're going to need 80% growth, I would say, at least for quite some time to come anywhere close to justifying the valuation. And I don't have a problem paying a huge price to sales multiple if I think that a company is going to grow uh, at a very strong rate for a, hard, a long period of time. The tricky part for me with a company like Snowflake is just the size of the business already. Given that price to sales multiple, this is an $81 billion company. And for the company to say 10x from here, it would have to be scratching the surface of almost a trillion dollars. I don't know the company or the opportunity well enough to say that's going to happen. I do know that I'm not going to bet against it, but boy, do I have a problem paying that it, the, the mark, that high of a valuation when the market cap is already so huge. Yeah, I remember uh, we did our Motley Fool Live award show uh, for our, our member live stream, um, and we had people submit uh, what they thought would be the the winners of all these different categories from 2020. And uh, Snowflake was an overwhelming submission for best IPO of 2020. And uh, it wound up being the winner as our analysts voted on it as well. And, and I'll reveal that here. But um, what, what Bill Mann made a very good comment on, he was saying like, you know, it was in a lot of ways the most hyped, 
the most followed IPO, it, as returns go, will not be the best IPO of 2020. There will probably be some sub $5 billion, sub $10 billion company that five, 10 years from now puts up way better returns than Snowflake. Not to say Snowflake's a bad business, but you have to right-size your expectations when you're talking about a company that's already worth $80 billion. That's why it's my favorite to look for high-growth companies that are trading, say, under a $10 billion number. It's much easier for me to believe that those companies can 5 and 10x than a company of this size. Yeah. And and so, you know, I, I have this as a watch list stock for me, mostly because even if I don't buy it, I need to be in the know on this as as a you know someone who follows this industry and follows cloud computing. Um, but I think what what gives me confidence that this business is probably going to be bigger uh, in five ten years is just the direction of cloud in general and the heavy heavy investments that are going into cloud. Um, if they are able to be uh, a business that makes that easier for companies. We've seen how wildly successful AWS is. I mean, if that was a standalone business, Brian, you'd be a shareholder, right? Totally. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> if Amazon got broken up and it was forced apart, I would happily accept my Amazon Web Services shares. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's so much money pouring into this space. And and I think just generally it's where we're going. That gives me a lot of confidence, particularly because, you know, as we've talked about at length, you know, they are, they are truly, it seems, the best at what they do. And the numbers seem to back that up. Um, I don't know that it's a position where I'd want a, a ton of my portfolio in it, though. Yeah, fair enough. But between these four, Dylan, would it be fair to say that Snowflake is your favorite? You know, I was thinking about that. And I don't own any. Um, there, are, there are a couple that I'm interested in, and uh, I'm planning on doing some buying in 2021. None of these are at the top of that list. I will say, just because of what we talked about in terms of multi-bagger potential, I'm a little bit more interested in a company like Asana. Um, and, and honestly, the, the margins are a huge part of that. <laughs> I, I, can, <laughs> I can confess that. I mean, it's just so appealing when you have that much money left over to pay everything else. Uh, it, it isn't hard for me to see that company being wildly profitable in the future. And it's still small enough that there's a lot of reward there for shareholders. So I, I'm trying to focus more and more on my portfolio in 10 billion, sub $10 billion companies. Um, and for that reason, uh, Palantir and Snowflake are a little bit less interesting to me, but I think they're both quality businesses. What about you, Brian? I'm in that exact same boat with you. Uh, Asana, I mean, I am not thrilled with the bottom line losses, uh, but there's a lot to like about the business. I think the product is very interesting. It's uh, it's very sticky. I think the leadership has ridiculously high pedigree. I love the Glassdoor ratings and it's really hard to not like an 88% gross margin to your point. It's not, it does not take a leap of imagination to think a couple more, a couple more years of very fast revenue growth plus potential for even rising margins all the way from 88%. Not hard to imagine this business becoming wildly profitable uh, in just a few years. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's the fun of it. We get to guess and uh, we get to see it play out many times over with all the things that we own or might own, Brian. That's right. So this one is definitely going back on my, my radar. The tricky thing about doing so many shows than we do, it's kind of hard to keep track of everything. So these review shows are very critical for me. So thank you for the reminder. Yeah. So we do this for you listeners, but really we do this for ourselves as well. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Have a great weekend, Dylan. You too. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at pool.com, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. 
and the Motley Fool may have four more recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Mm-hmm.